Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 7 this morning as we look at our second study in the life of Paul the Apostle. As you're turning there, I'll start us off with a word of prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for this kind of hunger and thirst for your word. To see a service packed full of people, Bibles turning to the place that we're going to read. You said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. So I pray you'd feed, you'd fill us, your people, as we look into your word this morning, as we look at this inspirational figure of Paul, the great apostle. But here, Lord, considering his early life before that time, we can see that you can change anyone. And we pray, Lord, that some who are here today or even listening by radio or internet who don't know you would come to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Benjamin Franklin, of all the things he said, and he said a lot of things, one that sticks out is this, whatever begins in anger will always end in shame. And I heard that, I read it, and I thought of Paul the Apostle in his pre-salvation experience. Beginning in anger, ending in shame. We're going to look at that episode of his life today. Because Saul of Tarsus was an angry young man. And he thought his anger was justifiable. Because he wanted to stop a movement that he thought was against his own religion, Judaism. I read about a young man who was a college student. He had a problem with anger. And he signed up for a class in college, Wildlife Zoology. One week and one chapter into the course, the teacher decides to give the students a test. So he goes into class, understands there's a test, and right off the bat that agitates him. He gets a little angry about it, sits down. But to make matters worse was the test itself. It was a piece of paper, no writing on it, but there were squares up and down on the page. And within the square, carefully drawn, were legs of birds. No bodies, no heads, no feet, just legs. And each student had to identify specifically what that bird was according to its legs. Well, this young student did not know a single answer. And it agitated him, it irritated him, and he started getting angrier and angrier the longer he looked at the page. Finally, in a rage, he got up, walked to the front of the classroom, and threw his test at the teacher's desk and said, You know what? This is the stupidest test I've ever seen. You're the dumbest teacher I know, and I hate this class. And the teacher smiled and calmly said, Young man, you just flunked this class. And the teacher looked at the test and noticed there was no name at the top. He said, Young man, what is your name? And the student bent down, pulled his legs up and said, You identify me. (laughs) 
Saul of Tarsus was easy to identify. Just look around Jerusalem and find that young, religious, angry zealot trying to stop Christianity. And he did it in the name of religion. He did it in the name of his God. Harry Emerson Fosdick once said, Some people have just enough religion to make themselves miserable. And I think Saul of Tarsus, deep in his heart, before his salvation, was a miserable, religious young man. So we're going to look at his life just prior to the Damascus Road experience. And maybe you can, in your mind, as we go through this, think of a person you would consider beyond hope. I know we know that God can do anything, but I want you to know He can. If you're thinking of someone and you think, ah, they'll never get saved. They're beyond reach. They're beyond hope. And you write them off. Think again. Saul of Tarsus shows that if God can save him, anybody's fair game to the Holy Spirit. Nothing is impossible at all with God. I suppose that if Tarsus High School had an annual... And it was Saul's senior year. And you know how in the back of the annuals they say, most likely to succeed, best dressed. And and there are several characters. I suppose that if Tarsus High School had an annual and had a little section that said, most unlikely to convert to Christianity, that Saul's picture would have been there. Because he was the least likely guy and everybody knew it. I also this morning would like you to think about church. Sort of as we parallel this study, just sort of keep in your mind the kind of church we're dealing with. And and just in your own heart, your own mind, think about what you like about church and what you don't like about church. I read an article this week, Why People Stop Going to Church. And I've read a lot of these articles over the years, and every few years it's sort of like the same article. But basically, people stop going to church for several reasons. They feel, A, the church doesn't really care about them. Uh, Number two, they get really busy in their personal life. They don't have as much time, so they just sort of drop out. Uh, Number three, the church becomes um, a a little too uh, politically or organizationally in tune rather than personally in tune, uh, and they just don't trust it any longer. And all of those may be valid reasons. But, but, think what it would be like to go to a church where during the service, an official might walk through and go up to the front and arrest the leader. Think of going to a church where the pastors get beat up for preaching the gospel. Think about going to a church where a lot of the time you spend praying for those of your brothers and sisters who aren't there this week because they're in prison. And you have sort of the setting of what is going on in Jerusalem at the time of Saul of Tarsus while he was there. Well, we're in chapter 7. We're going to look at a few select passages in 7, 8, and 9. And uh, what I'd like you to do with me is, is we're going to look at phases, four phases, four stages of Saul's anger. And the message is called Vendetta. Because here's a guy with obviously a deep-rooted grudge against what he sees. And at first he just sees, he just observes, he just listens. But as time goes on, poison enters his system. 
fuels into anger and then a grudge and then this vendetta. He's not content with just watching. He has to be involved in trying to stamp out this new religion. So we want to begin in chapter 7 because that's the speech of Stephen. It's a long chapter before the Sanhedrin and the synagogue in which he is speaking. So, um, Stephen, let me just tell you a little bit about him. He was a Greek-speaking or what we call a Hellenistic Jew. He's very articulate. He has an explosive combination of uh, incredible knowledge, acumen, uh, as well as deep conviction for what he believes. And I told you to turn to chapter 7, but do you mind just scooting back to two verses in chapter 6? Look at verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now this synagogue is filled with foreign-born Jews who have their own synagogue in Jerusalem. Jewish law tells us that there were, at that time, not one synagogue in Jerusalem, not two, but there were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. And I just want to briefly tell you where they came from, because if you read the Old Testament, there's never a mention ever, one time, of a synagogue. You turn to the New Testament, there's synagogues all over the place. That's because the the institution of the synagogue came between the Old and the New Testament in Judaism. When the children of Israel were taken away captive into Babylon and they couldn't bring their temple with them, they couldn't offer animal sacrifices, they couldn't practice ceremonial law, the only thing they were left with is gathering together in meeting places to study and read the scriptures. And they called those things the sunagoge, the gathering place together. And they would read the Bible, they'd read the scripture. Well, at the time of Saul of Tarsus, there were 480 synagogues, but this is a special one because notice the audience. It says there are Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia. Now we know where Saul of Tarsus was. He was there in that synagogue on that day. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and he listened to what Stephen was speaking, and it made a great impact on him. Now, we don't have time to go through this speech. You can see it's a long chapter. So I'm going to take you to the conclusion. Let's eavesdrop. Listen in to how he ends his sermon. Verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Well, that's quite a way to end a sermon, isn't it? How many could stand that kind of preaching? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard those things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. That is, they listened to him, they started grinding their teeth in anger and this expression of rage. So it's like a a pack of snarling, drooling wolves ready to pounce on Stephen. They didn't like what they heard. 
And that reaction would be enough to stop most people. You'd watch what your message is doing in the hearts of people, and you go, ooh, I better back off here. And, and just say some nice little benediction and close this thing off. But look at this guy, verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And I like this, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat at the right hand of God. I think here he stood up to welcome the first martyr into heaven. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. There is the first mention of Saul of Tarsus in all of Scripture. We're now introduced to him by name. And what do we find him doing? Guarding clothes. Watching a martyr die a martyr's death. What is interesting to me is is the reaction that is written about up in verse 54. It says they were cut to the heart. What Stephen said and how Stephen said it made such a dramatic impact that it did something to them. And you know, there is something about listening to a person with deep conviction who really believes what he or she says. They live that kind of life. They, they speak with deep conviction. When I first heard the gospel, when I slowed down long enough to really listen to a message on television by Billy Graham, it brought conviction because he had a conviction that what he said was true. When he said, there are many of you who are lonely, I thought... Yeah, he's speaking about me. I am lonely. And God loves you. I thought, he does? And he'll forgive you. And I thought, he will? It, all of those turns of the phrases brought such a depth of conviction. I thought, that guy really believes what he's saying. Story, true story about David Hume. He was one of the most famous atheists Scotland ever produced. David Hume one night went to hear George Whitfield, the great British evangelist, preach. And somebody spotted Hume at that crusade who knew who he was. And walked up to him and said, now, wait a minute. What are you doing here? You don't believe the gospel. And Hume pointed up to Whitfield on the platform and said, I don't. You're right. But he does. This man went to hear and see a man who truly believed with deep conviction the message of the gospel. And he wanted to watch somebody like that. It made an impact on him, as it did this crowd with Stephen. Well, they arrest him. They take him out of the city and they kill him. This is not a trial. This is a lynching. This is illegal. Jewish law required two, not one trials, two. Trial in one day, spaced by at least 24 hours, followed by a second trial, so that feelings of mercy could emerge. Also, Roman law didn't allow anybody to put anyone to death unless it was sanctioned by the Roman government. That's why they had to go to Pilate to get Jesus crucified. Forget that. Let's just take this guy out and kill him. And so they did. And they laid their clothes 
at the feet of a young man, notice that, named Saul. The term young man, neonios, refers to someone from ages 18 all the way up to as young as age 40. Notice how I phrase that. We don't exactly know. The word crops up in Greek literature. It could describe someone as young as 18, as as young as 40. We think that Saul of Tarsus was in his 30s at this point. We think that he was born right around the same time, incidentally, as Jesus Christ. Maybe off by about a year, so he was probably in his early 30s as a young man. So there he is watching a martyr. Now, what did did Saul of Tarsus look like physically? I don't know what you picture in your mind. I I bet if, if you were a producer of a Hollywood movie, you might cast Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Paul the Apostle, as tall, maybe dark, handsome, deep, commanding voice, maybe, because that's Paul. He's got to play that part. Well, we don't know, but... There is scripture that gives us a few hints. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, now Paul is referring to what his enemies are saying about him, the apostle. Paul writes these words. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily appearance is weak and his speech is contemptible. They were saying, oh yeah, Paul, look at him. His bodily appearance is weak. What does that mean? Well, we don't know. But there are other scriptures that would indicate he had an eye problem. In Galatians, when he writes to them around the second chapter, he says, I know you guys love me so much that you would have even plucked your own eyes out and given them to me. And at the end of that letter, he says, See what large letters I have written to you with. Now, we know that when Paul wrote letters, he he dictated them to a secretary or what we call an amanuensis. He would say them, the guy would write them down. But at the end of that letter, he wrote his own last paragraph, and he had to use long or large letters so that he could see what he was reading. We don't exactly know what that's about, but some believe that when he was stoned at Lystra, and when I say stoned, I don't mean, I mean he had rocks thrown on him, right? You get that. You got to be careful in this day and age when you say he was stoned. Well, when he was almost killed and he revived from that, some think that from that time onward he suffered eye problems. He couldn't see. However, there is a written description of Saul of Tarsus from outside sources, non biblical sources. Some think are credible, some doubt the credibility, but it's apocryphal book called the Acts of Paul. And here's the written description. Paul was a man of little stature, thin-haired upon his bald head, crooked or bowed in his legs, with eyebrows joining, unibrow, and his nose somewhat hooked. Another description says his eyeballs were protruding. So now doesn't that blow the whole image you had of Paul? I mean, if you were going to cast somebody in his role, who'd you pick? Danny DeVito or Marty Feldman or, or, or somebody, you know, this short, balding, bold-legged, unibrow, hook-nosed guy. That's Paul. 
weak in appearance. Well, that's his introduction. He's simply watching something take place. Now, follow me into phase two, where this attitude he has moves from just watching to wanting. His his anger emotionally gets kicked in. He starts getting poisoned in his system. Verse 59 of chapter 7. And they stoned Stephen, as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. See, now this is different. Back in chapter 7, as they drug him out of the city, he was just watching, watching the close and watching the event. Now he's consenting. And it's a very strong word. Sunyudakeo is the word. It means an active, not a passive, an active consent. Um, a strong approval. Uh, if you go to the doctor and he wants to do a procedure, I, I had a flu shot last evening, and I had to sign a consent. Now, that consent meant I let him do the procedure. It didn't necessarily meant I wanted him to do it. I didn't see the needle and go, yeah, yeah, love it. I signed a consent. It was a passive consent. This is an active consent. It's Saul of Tarsus watching Stephen die going, kill him, kill him. Yes, he deserves to die. That's what the word implies. According to the Jewish Mishnah, the victim was taken outside of the city to a place called the Rock of Execution. Twice the height of a man, between 10 and 12 foot, the rock was down below, there was a a parapet above, and the victim would be pushed headlong on that rock, hoping that they would break his neck with a fall or that they'd stun him enough to make the blows of the stone a little less dramatic. If he didn't die, and presumably he didn't die the first time because of the way it's written, then the the one who brought the charge would step forward and he would throw the first stone. And then the second witness would throw the second stone, and then they would all join in. And Saul is out there consenting to his death. So picture a man falling, thud, breaking of bones, the gushing of blood, and there is Saul of Tarsus saying, Good! Kill him! He deserves nothing less than death. You see, something's happening inside Saul. His system is being poisoned with anger. He's entering into this emotionally. Did you know that as an emotion, anger is more dangerous and even more lethal than the emotion of fear and stress? In other words, angry people die younger. A lot of studies have been done on this. One researcher said, hostile men are four times more likely to die a premature death than those who are not. Now, let me throw in a word about anger. We all know that there is such a thing as a holy anger, a justifiable anger, what we would call righteous indignation. It's also true that we tend to think that our anger is always justifiable. 
we quickly rationalize our own emotion of anger, saying this is just, this is right. I heard about a mother who heard her son screaming, five-year-old son, walked inside the bedroom, and the two-year-old girl had a hold of that five-year-old son's hair, holding it tightly, pulling it. Mom quickly released the young girl's grip and said to her son, Now, son, relax. She didn't mean to. She doesn't know that it hurt. Then she left the room. Just a second later, she heard the girl scream. She walked in, and there was that boy standing there going, Now she knows! It's retaliation. Frederick Beekner wrote these words, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to savor the last toothsome morsel is in many ways a feast fit for a king. But the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Here's Saul of Tarsus. From watching to wanting, his anger is taking over, his system is being poisoned, and Stephen is being killed. Which brings up this question. Why would a God of love, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving, allow Stephen, one of the church's best, to be exterminated? Why? Here's a guy who shows such promise. He's so articulate. He's so knowledgeable. And he gets killed. Here's part of the answer to save Paul. It was St. Augustine who said, the church owes Paul to the prayer and the death of Stephen. Saul will never forget what he sees. He'll never forget what he hears. This moment goes on to haunt him perpetually. He tries to cover it with more and more anger. But finally, on the Damascus Road, which we'll get to next week, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick Against the goads. Remember that? I think what's happening in Saul's mind is the tapes of Stephen are being played and replayed in his mind. He's hearing what he said. He's seeing those scenes. Never has a man died like this ever before. And it goes on to plague him and bother him. Already, the blood of the martyrs is becoming the seed of the church. So, what is produced out of this, in part, is the salvation of Paul. Let's take it to phase three now. Same chapter, chapter eight. He goes from watching to wanting, now to working. He's going to sign up for this persecution gig. It says, Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time, a great persecution, strong word, it means to chase or to hunt or to run after somebody. A great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them 
to prison. Can you see what's happening? Saul's anger is beginning to swell. He was just watching. Then he was consenting. Do it. Kill him. Now, he's not vocal. He's not verbal. He's acting. He's part of this persecution in Jerusalem. He himself is going on the hunt. He's not an observer. He's now a participant. We touched on this just briefly last week when we gave the profile of a radical rabbi. We looked at his Greek and Roman background, but especially his spiritual background in Philippians chapter 3, where he said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Remember that little sentence? Here is, in zeal, a man persecuting the church. Here it says he made havoc of the church, verse 3. Some of your translations say he destroyed the church. The word made havoc or destroyed, however you want to translate it, was a word that described, in some cases, wild animals like a wild boar on a rampage through a garden, totally destroying the garden. Or of an army that would sweep through a town and ravage that city. Saul made havoc on a rampage like a wild animal. Now, folks, this is the embodiment of religious zeal gone bonkers. Because here's a guy willing to arrest, hurt, kill in the name of God, in the name of his religion. It's what drove the crusaders to leave Europe and go to the Holy Land and kill Jewish men, women, and children in the name of Christ. It's what uh, drives radical Islamists to strap bombs on their bodies and blow up malls and restaurants. It's what motivates activists to bomb abortion clinics. It's what drives people to hijack airplanes and fly them into buildings. They think, this is what God wants me to do. They're zealous. And you remember, Paul the Apostle will later say concerning the Jewish people of whom he was a part of, there was that episode, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Oh, they're zealous. They really believe in what they're doing. They are so zealous. There's just no smarts with it. There's no wisdom. There's not the temperament of love and the wisdom of God mixed with it. One commentator describes this period of Paul's life. He says, Paul measured his religious zeal by his hatred of Christians. We can do the same, but in a different way. Christians measuring their Christianity by their hatred of communism. Fundamentalists measuring their fundamentalism by their hatred of modernists. Protestants measuring their Protestantism by their hatred of Romanists. It is a precarious reputation which is measured by such standards. Let me step a little further in that direction. I've always loved apologetics. I've studied it. It was one of the first serious studies I went on as a young Christian because I had so many unbelievers around me, I wanted to have answers. And I found there were great answers. And and though I love apologetics and those who do them, Be careful that you don't regard yourself as the clearinghouse of all truth. 
so that automatically, well, I don't know, it has to pass through me first. And let me say this. Be careful that you are known not for what you're against as much as for what you're for. I know people who make their whole life, you you always know what they're against because they're against everything. You just don't know what they're for. We know that Saul of Tarsus was against this group. Hey, did you know that the South Pole is perhaps the healthiest place on the globe to live? There's no pollution there. There's no contaminants there. Germs can't survive. There's nothing for them to feed on. And since winds on earth begin at the South Pole and blow northward, they blow all the bad contaminants, germs out of there. But why didn't anybody live there? I mean, could try to sell that to somebody. Hey, you're a health freak. You ought to move to the South Pole. It's the healthiest place on earth. But it's so cold. Yeah, but there's no germs there. But it's so cold. And here's my point. This is where I'm going with it. There are some people who are like that. They know the truth. Error has no chance to survive around them. They can spot a spiritual germ a mile away. But they're so cold, so hard, so harsh, so they think, I'm right. They become dead right. Let's take the final flash of Saul of Tarsus' anger. He went from watching to wanting to working. The fourth phase is wasting. He he wants to now waste a movement. Now watch this. This is chapter 9 now. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, that's how the early Christians were known, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed and he came near Damascus. And we'll get to that part next week. Now Saul's anger has reached such a pinnacle that he wants to go mobile. He wants to take his show on the road. He's willing to not stay in Jerusalem. He's going to go 160 miles north. Why? Because the church has been persecuted. They've been scattered. And a lot of them went all the way up to Damascus, the far reaches. So he thinks, okay, God has called upon me to stamp out this Christian movement once and for all. I'm going to be the guy to do it. So the chapter opens. Then Saul, still breathing, Don't pass over that too quickly. It's as if to say, the same mental, spiritual hardness of heart, anger and hostile disposition that he had when Stephen died, still with him. Hadn't changed. In fact, it's gotten worse. Because he wants to go other places. Look at the word breathing. Saul still breathing threats and murders. Now some Bible translations insert the word out. Saul's breathing out. In other words, he's vociferous. He's saying inflammatory words. When actually the word literally is to breathe in, to inhale, to go. The point of the language is simply this. 
Anger, murder, threats, animosity is now the life breath of this man. It's like a war horse horse, sniffing the battle. He loves it. He gravitates toward it. It's his very life breath. Okay, pause. Push pause for just a moment. Have you ever heard people say something like this? Well, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Witness a sincere human being named Saul of Tarsus, who in the name of God will arrest people, hailing them to prison, committing them to death. And he is very sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. He, this guy's sincerely wrong. Did you know that Adolf Hitler was very sincere? He sincerely believed that no Jew had a right to live. He was sincere. Ahmadinejad in Iran is very sincere that Jewish people shouldn't live, neither should Christians, and the whole world should be made Islam. He's so sincere, he's getting nuclear weapons to prove it. Sincerely wrong. Well, remember where we started? Ben Franklin said, Whatever has begun in anger will end in shame. Paul began with a seed of anger that grew to an emotional desire, that grew to getting involved, that grew to a passion of his life to stamp out Christianity. And he will always look back to this era of his life in shame. Four times he talks about it, or it's written about in the New Testament. And Paul, when he looks back, always has his head hung low when he writes it, so to speak. And he's always ashamed of it. Here's one scripture. I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy 1. Paul says to this young preacher, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Timothy, if God can change moi, He can change anybody. I was ignorant. I was a blasphemer. I thought I was doing God's will, and I was wrong. And He changed me. Now I'm going to close with this thought. What we just read is one of the toughest times for the Jerusalem church ever. They're being persecuted. They're going underground. They're fleeing the country. It's a very difficult time. Yet, did you know that this persecution served to revive the church and mobilize the church? Remember how Acts starts? The disciples want Jesus to tell them when He's coming back. And Jesus said, don't worry about times or the seasons. It's in the Father's hand. But... You will be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's chapter 1. Now we're in chapter 8. They're still in Jerusalem. None of them have gone to Judea. None of them have gone to Samaria. None of them have dared go to the uttermost parts of the earth. So it's as if they heard what Jesus said, but they're so complacent. I mean, why leave Jerusalem? What would motivate you? All the Christians who believe anything are here. It's safe here. So they didn't do it. Now they do. I close in chapter 8. Don't miss it. It says a great persecution, verse 1, arose against the church which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Judea, 
and Samaria. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. The persecution brought the scattering, and when they scattered, they opened their mouths, and people got saved. All of that to say this. Sometimes a church will experience a difficult season. Hard time. Whether it's a time of persecution or great difficulty. Like this church has in recent times. But would you dare peek behind the curtain and see a God who is in control, who is purifying and making their witness stronger and creating a greater harvest, greater purity, greater humility, and greater strength? One person said, crushing the church is like smashing an atom. The divine energy of high quality is released in enormous quantity and with miraculous effects. So as you close, think of that short, angry, bald, bold-legged, unibrow, enemy of the church. And everything he tried backfired. The church goes stronger and bigger and better than ever before to prove what Jesus said was right. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the biggest enemy will become the greatest apostle. And we'll see that next time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this look into this pre-salvation mentality of this man. Seething anger. A man with a grudge. A vendetta against those who would dare cross his religious experience. Thank you for the way you got a hold of him. Thank you for the way you got a hold of us. And I pray, Lord, that wherever you take us, wherever we go, we would preach the word and you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.